whose son is the Christ, Jesus asked that week before he died. It's the last time anyone really wants to talk to him so far as the Pharisees and Sadducees are concerned. The very next line after our text is, from that point on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Instead, they just plotted to kill him. They were tired of listening to him. But his question, whose son is the Christ, and their answer, the son of David, a man, to which he says, are you sure, is at the heart of the problem the church at Colossa was beginning to have as this mixed church, a lot of Jews and a lot of Greeks, were struggling with the form of Greek religion that would eventually adopt parts of Christianity and come to be known as Gnosticism, or the way they would have heard it, knowledge. The religion of knowledge, secret knowledge, about how you can escape this world and with the right answers, climb your way up into the very presence of God. Now you can maybe see how a Christian outside can be put on that story. And particularly then, that story is not just about going to heaven, say, or rising from the dead with Christ, but it's a bit deeper. It has to do with how the Greeks conceived of this world. And they saw this world not just as being fallen, but as being evil in itself. You'll hear this when some people today will talk about how our bodies are just kind of shells, but our spirits are light and truth. And Buddhism will teach this maybe most clearly of all. Your goal is eventually to leave your body behind and join with the great nirvana, join with the great spiritual reality that is far above us. But Christ, when he says, whose son is the Christ, makes a very different claim. He is not merely descended from a man, but he is the everlasting and eternal begotten son of God himself. And this puts a big spin on the Gnostic idea that we must escape this age since he entered this age not merely to teach, but to redeem, to make his flesh part of it. He took on the flesh. And this flesh, again, the Greeks saw as evil. Christ says, no, it's not evil. You're evil, and your evil has corrupted it, but the flesh, the material is still good. So for our part, as we enter into the book of Colossians, where they were beginning to believe that Jesus was not so much the son of God, but more of a a really powerful angel who came down to teach you how you can be just like him and you can find your way up until angelhood and godhood yourself, not unlike the Mormons teach today. Against this, We want to emphasize a couple key points today. One is that earth and God are not really the same thing. Now, again, the Greeks didn't believe that the greatest, highest spirits were what earth was made of, but they did believe that earth is made of and by the worst and weakest of the gods called the Demiurge, and that it is his mistake in creating us that we have to escape from. But to fight back against this, remember then, our God is not nature. You don't actually see him in the sunset. You don't actually find him in the trees and in the rain. They are marks of his power, but they are not him. 
To put this in the most American terms, if you remember Yoda, when he's teaching Luke and he says the force is in the rock and in the tree and in the ground. He's talking about Gnostic God. And we reject this idea for our God is not part of these things, but the maker of these things. Yeah? In this way, um, we also then teach that matter is created good, not evil. This means that what you find in this world is never the problem. The problem is always the lack of faith in the true God that you bring to it, which tends to make you worship it rather than the true God. Yes? In this way also, it's important to remember that out in this natural world, created by God, but fallen, not evil in itself, but we bring evil to it, there is other evil out there. And these are spirits. These are demons. These are angels that are no longer really angels. And this is where the other kind of terrible part of Gnosticism is, which the Church of Colossa was beginning to deal with. And that is the worship of angels. This began by kind of coming up with categories of angels. And the intertestamental Jews didn't help us with this. There's all sorts of named angels. They had figured out layers and pantheons and areas of how you climb up into the highest orders of God's creation. But as you try to figure out what those things are and you learn their names so that after you die and you're ascending through what would be kind of a purgatory and you find this angel and he requires his name that you pass, well, this is effectively, in our life, the worship of demons. And so the church at Colossa was on the verge of losing the worship of the true God and replacing it with the worship of demons, by which they would use calendars and rituals of Judaism in order to prove to themselves they're really Christians. Now, hopefully you've learned so far at church as St. Paul, just period, you never have to prove to God that you're a Christian. You're a Christian because God has come and proved to you that you're a Christian. That's what holy baptism is. He says, you're a Christian now. And you're like, how can water do such great things? And he's like, do you believe me so little? Do you not know that the earth was created out of water and by water, that it was destroyed by water in the flood and even redeemed in this way? So how is it not possible for this same God to use a little water with the same almighty word to say, I wash you clean in the blood of Jesus? You can see how that Baptist argument is really just a strange modern disbelief in the power of God to do what he wants with what he wants, especially you, especially you. Now, baptism does get mentioned in the book of Colossians in chapter two, and we may touch on that today. But what I want to do now is walk through a couple of key passages together. And so if you would pull out one of those Bibles in the pew in front of you, the ESV that's sitting there, or if you have your own, and find your way to Colossians. And again, if someone could help me with the page number by shouting out, that would be great. The large print, we're on page 1168, if you've got a large print. We're going to look for Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. At this point, Paul breaks into what scholars have since called the great Christ hymn of Colossians. Uh, it is a poetic section in which he lauds as much as Christ ever is in the New Testament, his Godhead and his almightiness born in our human flesh. Yes, Colossians chapter one, 
verses 15 through 20, where he begins by saying that he, that's Jesus Christ, is the image, that's something you see, of the invisible, that's something you don't see, God. Let's just stop right there. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, I mean, if you want to be reasonable and insist that everything work according to your mind, this part can't be true either. There is no way to have the image of something invisible. It's impossible. But this is exactly why the incarnation of Christ turns our fallen world upside down with the truth of God's power to reign over all of it supreme and that for your good. So that when you looked upon the man, Jesus Christ, walking amongst the foothills of Judea, wearing all the funny clothing that the Jews wore, saying and talking in all the funny ways that the Jews did, eating the funny food, following the funny calendars, it was God himself in the flesh doing this, not because it was the only way to live, but because long before he knew we wouldn't recognize him when he came, So he made sure to narrow it down to a small group and he made them do all this funny stuff so that it would be clear he's going to come from that group. And then one day, there he is. And of course, as you know, St. John tells us, to his own his came, but his own, to his own he came, but his own received him not. Yeah, they crucified the Lord of glory, not because they're Jews, but because they're just like us, unbelievers at heart. And yet he triumphed over that putting it to shame in his resurrection and appearing to many, thousands upon thousands of Jews who first believed. And then that message came out to the nations, to the Gentiles, to us. But again, this all because he, the image of the invisible God, had come down into us to be seen, to be touched, to be heard. In this, he becomes the firstborn over all creation. That's the next line, yes? So he is not created But according to his human flesh, he has bound himself to the created. He has incarnated himself and thus puts him, because he's God, above the rest of us, even though he was born in the middle of us. Again, the question he asked the Jews, how can he be David's Lord since David came before him? David is his great, 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 I probably missed one, grandfather. So how can you be the king of your great, 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 great grandfather? It can't be. It's out of order unless the one who is after me is before me, as St. John the Baptist says of the Christ. Yes, that from eternity he has been the Son of God and his being firstborn over all creation is only a matter of his human body, which nonetheless makes that human body God and your God. Yes, your God. So then, before all of this, verse 16, by him, Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now that little section, those words, they probably go pretty fast in English. Not a lot of thrones even around these days. I guess the queen in England maybe still sits on one if she can walk. (laughs) But this is not really what he's talking about. All four of those words are about Greek religion. And that pantheon of layers of angels and spirits that you would need to climb through in order to ascend to the highest spiritual realm. And so these thrones and dominions are are like layers of purgatory, if you can think of it that way. It's not the way they would have talked about it. 
And what he's saying is that whatever that is, whatever else there might be behind this creation that we can't see, if there's an angel for every tree and an angel for every wind, it doesn't matter. Jesus made all of it. He's over all of it. I mean, this is sort of our problem with the Roman Catholic cult of the saints, how they pray to the saints. Maybe the saints can hear you. Maybe the saints can pray for you to Jesus. But you know, you can pray to Jesus yourself, and that's actually what he wants. Yeah, He doesn't want you to ask St. Michael, the angel, to come help. He says, ask Jesus to send St. Michael. When St. Michael himself, we're told, rebukes the devil, he doesn't say, I rebuke you. He says, Jesus rebuke you. That's actually what the angel says. Yeah, And so we hear here that all those things are submitted to this one man, this one man, Jesus. All things rest of the verse, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. Shift. Everything before this has been about creation. First article in your creed. Yeah, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. That's the first article. He's moving now to the second article. And in Jesus Christ, his son, he is the head of the body the church, I guess I should say the third article, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. To conceive of the church is a challenge for us because that word generally means a building these days, right? When you go to church, even though you know you're going to worship Jesus, you know you're going to feast upon his body and blood in the supper, nonetheless, the word still means the building as we use it. But in the original, that's nothing to do with it. There weren't any buildings. There was just the body of the supper and the bodies that make up the body of the people. Those who are called out of darkness into his light. And the word church, ecclesia, means called out. That's the word. When you assemble anywhere, it's because you've been called out from where you were into that gathering, gathered space. And of we who are gathered by the call, he is risen. Alleluia. We who are gathered by that call, he is our head. Now you might remember this from last week when we talked about man and woman in Christ and how man is the head of woman in Ephesians chapter 5. There are some who would say that word head doesn't really mean authority. It just kind of means someone who's with you. Of course, modern feminism can't stand the idea that there could be any authority anywhere But here again, that means you would have to say Christ, head of the church, isn't really head of the church. Think of how weird a metaphor that is, too. Think of your head and your body. Think of the relationship between your head and your body. So is the relationship of a husband to wife. So is the relationship of a husband, excuse me, of a father or a mother to the child. Yeah. So is the relationship of Christ Jesus to you plural, but you individual are part of that you, plural. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, this is of the church, the firstborn from the dead. So to be the called, to be the Christians, to be the followers of the way is to be those who shall be born again from the dead. And remember that being born again is begun already, not with your body, but with your spirit that by the Holy Spirit of God, you are already renewed and alive forever. You are immortal now. You cannot die now. Even though you die, yet you will live. In this, you may also hope 
that your spirit is not alone going to rise to Christ, but that on that last day, he will put your spirit back into your body. So indeed, born again of water and the spirit, you are alive forevermore. Now, knowing that even though this body dies, this body will come back from the dead as well. And on that day, that great and magnificent day, when every knee shall bow, the rest of the verse will show forth that in everything he may be preeminent. That is the first, the top, the most. For in him, verse 19 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And there's no part of God that isn't in Jesus. He's not 98% or 80% or like God, but all the fullness of God. We can get distracted with the doctrine of the Trinity and how complex that is right now, but let's just keep it simple. When Philip in the upper room is hearing Jesus talk in sort of similar ways, he says, Jesus, show us the Father, and then will we believe? And Jesus, who never says, I am the Father, He simply says, have you not known me? Do you not see me? When you look at Jesus, you see the Father because the Son is the image of the invisible Father. Yes, they work together, not against each other. God was pleased to dwell in him and verse 20, through him to reconcile. That means to put back together to himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So it's, it's one thing to reckon with that this guy, Jesus, walking around healing people left and right and silencing everyone with his knowledge of the Bible is God. It's another thing to watch him die and still believe he's God. What horrid dread. Our God is dead. And for three days in the tomb there he lay. And those who had believed hid in fear and did not know what this meant. Yes, but it is in fact for us that he was betrayed, for us that in crown of thorns he was arrayed, for us that he was given his dying breath. Because as God, dying as a man, he could not stay dead. He couldn't have died just as God. That's why he became a man. As a man and God, he can't stay dead. That's why he rose again. He is risen. And this is the plan for the fullness of time. This is what he has always intended in order that we might not be trapped in our own rebellion against him. I want to have you skip ahead now in the text to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. where This is our text that we heard read a little while ago, but he's going to come back and emphasize this same point. He talks about the struggle he has in verse 1 for those in Laodicea and at Colossa, because he knows that these teachings, if left to fester, will steal their faith and stop them from being confident that God is for them and not against them. What he wants, verse 2, is that their hearts would be encouraged and knit together in love to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Christ through true knowledge, not secret knowledge, true knowledge that is God's wisdom revealed, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, will encourage your heart. And that's why you're a Christian, right? Because when you hear that he is risen, 
Alleluia. You know there's something more. You know that it's true. And you know that even though you might not know enough or do enough or try enough, his story rings with an eternal reality that wakens you, that hearkens within your ears, that pulls you toward him. This is a little bit also of what I did talk about last week, that Christ is in you and that you are one with him as his body. I remembered after last week, there's a phrase from our theology for talking about our unity with Jesus. It's called the mystical union. And this is again the idea that feasting upon the body and blood of Jesus, you have in fact become one with God. You're not God yourself, but compared to the rest of creation, you're a whole lot closer. You're set apart by God who inhabits you as his temple, not of stone, but of flesh. And that this, again, is his goal, not only as one man for all the people, but as the king of a new people living from his own life. As Paul will emphasize, it is a mystery. You can't walk out and claim the power of God to yourself. But when assailed by the devil, you can, in fact, say, devil, do you intend to stand against Christ Jesus and God Almighty? Well, then don't you dare stand against me, for they inhabit me. That confidence doesn't come just by saying, I will believe it. It comes by these words being heard, read, regurgitated. And of course, as I continually encourage you, the Psalms and the Proverbs will build up your confidence in this. As you pray the Psalms, you pray the prayers of Jesus. And from time to time, you'll be forced to pray things that you'll say, that doesn't apply to me. And you're right if you mean me by myself. But if you stop for a moment and think about it as Christ praying within you, now it does. One of my favorites is in Psalm 44, where it says, they almost made an end of me on earth. And I think, well, how can I say that? I'm only 40, and who's actually trying to make an end of me? But if I think about all the times that the rising tides of nations and wicked men have tried to destroy the church, the body of Christ, and all the times it looked like the church was done for and gone, then I can say they have almost made an end of me on earth, but they have never prevailed. And then I can know that I too, as part of that church, stand today. And whatever comes against us will not prevail any more than it has ever prevailed before against Christ's church. That is the mystery of the mystical union, that he is one with you, and that makes him one with you, plural, us, us across the world, the entire church in every place and in every time. Yes, this is the hidden treasure of wisdom and knowledge, which he says, verse four, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You heard it also read about being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Yes, this is what makes sense. When somebody wants to attack your faith, they're going to do their best to do two things. First, in our age especially, they're going to try to emotionally batter you. They're just going to not take your answers seriously. They're going to ignore what you're trying to say. They're going to quibble with a piece of it, and they're going to try to use their force of will to make you feel like you're wrong. And then you'll hang your head and say, I know, I know, I'm a good American, I do what I'm told. 
<laughs> That's the first attack. As they do that, they will latch onto what appears to be reasonable, what appears, appears to be clever. I mean, we've already talked about it this morning. Might as well do it again. Why do the Calvinists, friends of ours as they are, Christians as they are, not believe that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are present on the altar in the bread and wine according to his words? Very simple. Because a human body can't do that. That's it. That's the reason. A human body can't do that. Seems very reasonable. I can't put my body into bread and wine. I can't walk on water. Of course, Calvin says he didn't walk on water. He changed the water into something more firm, like pavement. And so you can see how once you make a small error, it will continue to bother you and to trip you up further and further. What I want you to then understand again is the impossibility of Jesus. He's impossible. Our religion is unbelievable. It can't be, except that it is. Which then, when you find out that the very thing that can't be is the thing that is, then you really should question all your assumptions. Everything you think you know now isn't so sure. And of course, that's why when Christ then begins to give you new, greater, precious promises, such as that this age won't make an end of you on earth, well, you can know that no matter how bad it looks, it will indeed be better in him. I've been uh, rereading a C.S. Lewis book called The Silver Chair. Did somebody testify on that? Anybody read that? Just one back here, Silver Chair. Um, there's two. All right. It's, I think, book five in the original order. There's a moment at the end of the book where they've defeated another witch, not the white witch, but the green witch, and everything in her kingdom is falling down. And they think they're going to die. And the prince who they've been trying to save, his name is Rillian, he says, well, then we will die. Let us commend ourselves to the lion. Now, if you don't know the story, the lion is a guy named Aslan. He's Jesus. He's the picture of Jesus. But the confidence of Rillian as the ceiling, they're underground, the ceiling is collapsing, there's a fire coming, there's a flood coming, well then let us die. That is Christianity. It really is. Yeah. The confidence of the mystery of Christ in you to know that death cannot contain you either. Yeah. Verses 6 through 15, I'm going to read and cover briefly as our conclusion this morning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What does that mean? It means God cut off the foreskin of your stony heart. I know that's a strange metaphor, but it's the biblical metaphor. Your heart of stone was covered by an outside that could not see God. And in the reality that he is risen, he is risen indeed, alleluia, that stony outside has been removed and your heart has begun to beat with the Holy Spirit 
of God. A circumcision made without hands, but by water and the word. These very promises, which puts off the body of your flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him, don't miss it, verse 12. Where are you buried with Jesus? It's in the Bible. It's not the only place it says it. It's so very clear, you Baptists, I don't get it, why you won't read your own Bible. Having been buried with him in baptism. The words baptizo in the Greek, you can't escape it. If you have to be immersed, I disagree. You just have to get wet, but we can talk about that later. Let's allow the immersion. You have to be immersed. It still says baptism right there. So if you want to know where God has sworn to you with an oath, that your heart of stone is broken and you are filled with the new spirit of Christ is because he has buried you with Christ in baptism in which, rest of the verse, you were also raised. Baptism is your resurrection with Jesus, not by yourself and not by the water, duh. With him, through what? Your works, through the power of the water? No, through faith. In what? The words, I baptize you, amen. That's it. It's not that complicated. There's no secret levels. There's no. Tra- it's just the fact that he's claimed you and you say, oh, God is more powerful than me. Okay. Your faith in the powerful working of God who raised him, Christ, from the dead. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, past tense, already done. God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities, that's the demons, and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you'd like to follow up with that in your reading this week, Colossians 3, 5 through 17 would be a nice capstone. Maybe this afternoon, read that with your family around the dinner table. Find out what words are carrying over from the sermon this morning into Colossians 3, 5 to 17. But maybe again, start with the beautiful reality. Verse 14 through 15 of chapter 2, that the record of your debt in evil against God has been canceled by God himself dying in your place on the tree in order that that precious body and blood even this morning might set you apart, entering into you the mystery of Christ to make you those born again. In the name of Jesus, amen.